Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Oakland Roots and Soul President Lindsay Behrens. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Lindsey Behrens in segment two, but let's bring in Witty now. How are you, my friend? Grant, you're back from vacation. How are you, sir? I am back from vacation, uh, and I'm very relaxed and recharged and <laughs> you know it, it did what vacations are supposed to do i went to a wedding of some friends on a greek island uh hung out there for another i don't know almost week afterward got a lot of reading done did keep an eye open for the world cup 26 venue reveal which we'll talk about here in a second um but other than that just didn't do any work whatsoever it's a good time of the year for that because there's not as much soccer going on how have you been yeah, it's been strange, uh, the, the lack of soccer. It's good to have MLS back uh, because there were some days where you open up the Fat Mob app, and I feel like the Fat Mob app has like a 365 for 365 batting average that no matter the day you open it up, there's something that you'd be like, oh, that's intriguing. But after the World Cup Interconfederation playoffs ended, the rest of the week was like, whew, there is not a lot going on. So uh, good to have at the very least some MLS back, and uh, we're, we're now into the thick end of the season. You know, I tweeted out on Saturday morning, because Saturday mornings are like Premier League mornings to me, and occasionally Bundesliga mornings. And so my Saturday morning, Malaysia was the, the top league available on my, <laughs> my Fatba app. Um, and if I had gotten up a bit earlier, the J League in Japan, mm. but... Uh, not a lot to choose from, but the wonders of Twitter. I had a friend recommend a Twitter follow of the Malaysian League, and the guy contacted me and sent me all this information about how it's sort of like an MLS light. It's it's chaotic. It's got all sorts of stuff going on. So I'm all in on the Malaysian League for at least a week or two here. Um, we might have to but sound the klaxon, Grant, for like, because if there's an expert somewhere in the world about the Malaysian domestic league, and there is an expert about everything, I've I've wanted to uh, try and build out an expert or a a base, a network of 32 experts for all 32 World Cup teams, <laughs> and there might be a couple that we might need to sound the social media klaxon for, because if there's an expert on the Malaysian domestic league, there is an expert on anything. Well, usually when I hear about the Malaysian league, it's about some terrible betting scandal. <laughs> <laughs> Good shout. <laughs> <laughs> but, but other than that, like if we can find an English language Saudi Arabia expert on Twitter, that would be awesome because a couple of reasons. They're in the World Cup, but they're also, it sounds like, Doug McIntyre reporting a friendly opponent for the U.S. in September. Um, I got to admit, I don't know much about Saudi Arabian soccer, uh, except they're buying soccer, <laughs> the Saudis. Yeah. I, I know, golf. I know, I know. One thing, I did a uh, a friendly when they one of their main domestic teams played the New York Cosmos when I was working at BN Sports, and I did, and actually they played some decent stuff. I feel like the, the the Saudi Arabians are probably a bit underrated in in the world of international football. They've been decent, uh, so I feel like they're at the very least their money is buying them something. Well, one of the great goals in World Cup history from '94, Saeed Al Oweran. Look mm. it up on YouTube. Wow. Just went straight through the Belgian defense um, 
back in those days, the Saudis could score great goals against Belgium. That probably wouldn't happen as much these <laughs> days. But um, in any case, let's catch up on a few things because a lot's happened. Uh, some of it off the field, some of it on the field since the last time we talked. And probably the biggest news story has been the announcement on Thursday night of the World Cup 26 host cities. And I had done a ton of coverage on this leading up in the weeks to the announcement uh, because it was really interesting to me. It was a little bit like a Billions episode, like when they're talking <laughs> about getting the Olympics for New York. And a lot of money and effort and time went into these bids from the U.S. cities. And now we have the list. And for me, after all the reporting I've been doing over the weeks, really only one surprise. And that was Boston getting games and the Baltimore DC bid not getting games for this World Cup. And what I'm told was actually a very last second decision by FIFA. And I, I'd actually love to find out about how haphazard some of these decisions were. <laughs> <that FIFA made. laughs> <laughs> but what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, so it, it was really interesting because, like you mentioned, a lot of these cities put in a ton of effort and energy. And I remember it around the time that the final bids were being put in and FIFA visits were happening that I, I told you about how I listened to a few podcasts covering MLS and in Kansas City. It was a massive deal. Uh, I, I'm doing Inter-Miami, Atlanta United. We're recording this before that game kicks off. And in Atlanta, I heard a couple podcasts. They're absolutely fired up, and it's a life-changing event. And and I don't – perhaps my lack of enthusiasm for Miami getting it is not because I'm not fired up about Miami getting the World Cup. It's because, one, I'm probably an arrogant Miamian and think that Miami was just by birthright going to get this, which appears to be based off your reporting how they felt as well. But – Miami by birthright got it. And also, I don't really have a concept, having not been to World Cup, having not really experienced what that's like in market, how significant it is for a country to host the World Cup, how the World Cup basically takes over the country that it inhabits for that week, and every single person in the entire country is talking about it. There's massive implications for the growth of the sport. I don't really know what that's like tangibly, having never experienced it. So while I am incredibly excited that Miami is getting it, I'm incredibly excited at really going to any or perhaps all of the 16 cities over the course of the World Cup in 2026. I, I don't really have a concept for it yet. So I think it was incredible. I think those 11 cities, I think the fact that the nation's capital is not involved is stunning and it goes to show how much uh, Daniel Snyder is loathed in both that area and around the country and how much that stadium is a whole. Um, I'm you go back four years ago, I had Chicago for Univision this weekend for our MLS coverage and Chicago pulled out four years ago, just not interested. And it's weird that the city that hosted the opener in 94 is not even involved. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think it really starts to put a frame around just how big this World Cup is going to be for this country in four years' time. I should say this also, my hometown, Kansas City, may be more excited than any other host city to get the games. And I kind of get it because uh, for Kansas City, this is something that they've now gotten that Denver didn't get, that Nashville didn't get, that Cincinnati didn't get. And... If you want to sort of be seen as a global city, that's a way to do it, to get World Cup games. And there's a great soccer culture in Kansas City that's developed. And uh, I'm really excited just as a Kansas Cityan to uh, see World Cup games in, in my hometown um, at uh, Arrowhead Stadium. It should be really cool. And then, you know, like 
any other reactions I've got, I guess, it's it's one showing that personal relationships matter. Bob Kraft had probably the closest personal relationship of any owner uh, in, in the U.S. with the FIFA president uh, over the last few years. In Boston, which had seemed to be on the outside looking in, ends up getting games. Edmonton gets shut out and... As a result, I think that's why you saw an 11th U.S. city, Boston, get in as opposed to the 10 that we had been expecting for a long time. And then there's not a lot in the Midwest. You know, Kansas City is really about it. And I don't consider Dallas and Houston necessarily to be in the Midwest. But uh, there's not a lot going on in the center of the country. And I thought it was just interesting how the announcement went with West central and east in terms of what fifa was saying and they included atlanta in the central group as well as mexico city and monterey and i think we're trying to spin it so yeah we really didn't leave out that many cities in the midwest but they kind of <laughs> did um and you know look i you know we still have in the next year i think to find out which city is going to get the final which city is going to get the opener who's going to get the draw, all that stuff. So there's a lot that remains to be seen. And I think we'll see more stuff come out uh, in terms of fallout in the next few days. Hopefully I'll report some of it myself uh, in this Friday's newsletter. Um, but let's talk a little bit about some other things here. Uh, we've got a wrap-up, I guess, on the U.S. men's national team, because we haven't talked since uh, that ended uh, this June window. Anything Stand out for you. Yeah, so in that final game against El Salvador, I thought it was really interesting that Greg Berhalter basically said that Haji Wright's experiment uh, in playing with the national team probably ended that day, and maybe he'll have a go in the next cycle. But he basically said he was given an opportunity to play from the start and didn't really play well enough uh, to... Or to fully take advantage of that opportunity. It's it's kind of strange for a national team manager to sort of be that frank about it, but both he and Ethan Horvath kind of didn't really put themselves in the picture. I will say, doing any kind of judgment off of a game that was played on a mud patch seems incredibly harsh, and it really just goes to show, you know, it, it, I was following some of the reaction on Twitter from some of my friends. If that game for me was a complete throwaway because of the conditions... But it's the nature of national team football that you get so few opportunities to actually have a look at the U.S. men's national team that even games that shouldn't mean anything, that if your club team played them, you'd be like, ah, whatever, that's one of 34, one of 38, one of 60 if you're Liverpool. It, it doesn't matter, but because it's a national team, each game comes with judgments. They have to come with judgments. Otherwise, you know, what, what was the point of the exercise? And yet... Those two guys uh, might have played themselves out of the picture with the mistakes or poor performances that they put into that game. I think in the overall, that game was actually probably a really cool team bonding exercise just because all the all the players after the game had like this, we just went through a war, that shit was insane uh, kind of feeling in Instagram comments and each other's posts. Um, so, so that was a pretty cool element. But I think the U.S. will probably head into the World Cup knowing that they're going to play at the very least one game against a team that will play behind the ball. Um, and you know, they'll have to figure out an opponent. They'll play against England, a very strong side, and it'll be curious to see if they try to go toe-for-toe -toe like they really did against Uruguay, and that was kind of a fascinating exercise. But I think in the overall, you don't really learn a ton from this window just because these aren't competitive games. These aren't games that matter. It's really what are they gathering within the camp as Intel to maybe figure out these final few spots for Qatar. I will say this. It's pretty easy to sort of dump on the Nations League group stage just because... 
you know, the, the opportunity cost is significant. The U.S. could have used those games to schedule friendlies against much tougher opponents in preparation for the World Cup. And yet I do think the ability to have an away game in the group stage or two against, you know, semi-difficult competition on the road, which honestly is a lot of teams in CONCACAF for this U.S. team. They, they haven't been a good road team in competitive games, and it's not like the U.S. would schedule a friendly in El Salvador to get that experience. That's one thing Jurgen Klinsmann used to do. He used to schedule friendlies at the Azteca and at Panama, and the U.S. really doesn't do that anymore. And so I do think there's some value potentially into playing on the road in El Salvador. And obviously the U.S. didn't get three points out of it. So there was a challenge there, despite all the weird conditions. Um, and then, yeah, like you, I was surprised how Frank Berhalter was about Haji Wright. I don't necessarily take it to mean that Haji Wright is completely out of the picture now when it comes to the World Cup. Um, that said, I don't think he's come away from this window having taken advantage of the opportunity that he had to be a striker for this team in Qatar. Um, otherwise, I wanted to kind of seg into a little Miami talk here because one thing I noticed in the last couple of days is these guys are on vacation now and they have precious little time for vacation given the crazy schedule that exists. Basically, June 15th to July 1st. And yet it was kind of cool on Instagram to see players, US players like Weston McKenney, Jedi Robinson, Eunice Musa hanging out together in Miami. And there's other guys too there right now. Chris Richard is there too. Um, and they've chosen to hang out with each other on their vacations. I think that's a great sign for the team. Yeah, and and played in a in a Legends game that was here in Miami last night that featured Roberto Carlos and Ronaldinho fielding teams. Um, I'm actually currently at the stadium, and it was I, I had some legitimate FOMO. I was calling a game uh, for Univision, and I missed this game and. The social media was so cool because you have young players interacting with legends. You have Ronaldinho, who is this cult of personality. It's remarkable to see what follows him. But I, I think that you're right. It is cool from a camaraderie standpoint. And we talked about this a bit during the pandemic period when Christian Pulisic went on international duty when he didn't have to because he was hurt with Chelsea. They seem to like hanging out with each other. And I feel like there's an intangible there. And I wonder as well, if, you're, if we're talking about these final roster spots, if maybe that comes into consideration. If you're picking guys 24, 25, and 26, maybe they're not going to play, but they are going to be around to offer third and fourth tier squad depth and also help keep a certain chemistry within the team. But it's great that these guys like hanging out with each other. You want to have that feeling, and we saw the value that it's provided for England uh, in, in their national team setup, how they enjoy going to represent that shirt. That team means something different than what it means for those guys to play against each other at club level, and they build their own unique environment, which is fun. So it's credit to Greg Berhalter and the overall staff there for building an environment that it's very clear that they like being around each other. And even though they were just around each other for, what, three weeks uh, over the course of playing four games, that they still hang out with each, with each other away from the field because like you said, they just get so few opportunities to do so. Also pretty cool for me to see like Ronaldinho and Vinicius Jr. playing together and, and, and hugging each other and, and spending time on that field. And even legends like uh, Falcao, you had the Colombian legends. You had Pibe Valderrama, you had Rene Aguita of all people, yes. who I probably would have been as, most, as excited <laughs> as, as anyone to see. And, and Radamel Falcao as well. 
and and then current players like Weston McKinney and and uh, just so Alfonso cool. Davies I, was here. Yeah, I mean, like I, I'm, every year I remind myself between June fifteenth and June thirtieth, I should just go to Miami and write about the scene of what it's like because more and more players every year. Paul Pogba was there last night. Just. Hang out in Miami. Yeah, no, it, it's wild. I, I I promised you that I was going to do that, and I have failed so far. So uh, maybe over the course of the next few days, I'm going to try and go around some of uh, South Florida's biggest hot spots and find professional footballers because there's so many. Like there was like half the Juventus team and half the Real Madrid team were here. So Aider Militao was here, Vinicius Junior was here, Paulo Dybala was here, Paul Pogba, who's soon to be Juventus, was here. Like you mentioned, it's just it's insane. It's insane how many people. And like I wonder if any of those guys were like committed to playing this game or just like hey this is happening in town you want to come by and have a nice time have a little kickabout and keep fresh while, while, while you're on vacation it was ridiculous i also want to talk about the u.s women's team because they are getting together this week for two friendlies against columbia and not only was the roster announced for these friendlies but also for the women's world cup and olympic qualifying tournament that's coming up in monterey mexico I made my travel plans, by the way. I'm going to be there for games two and three, which are actually the important ones for qualifying for the World Cup. And a few surprises, interesting aspects of this roster for the U.S. women. Alex Morgan is back. She's earned a spot, um, leading scorer in the NWSL. Uh, Kristen Press, who just did her ACL, unfortunately, uh, Vlad Kamandanovsky goes to the trouble to say, even if she hadn't done her ACL, I wasn't going to call her in, which is just kind of wild that he yeah. said that. Um, and then Megan Rapino is called in despite not having played much, uh, but just started her first league game of the season got sent off by the way, in a weird, uh, situation. <laughs> uh, but Andonovsky saying, straight up that Megan Rapino is here not just because of what she brings on the field, but because of her leadership, etc. And at the same time saying Mal Pugh is going to start. It's going to be very hard for her to be uh, taken away from being a starter for this U.S. team. Anything stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, you look at, you know, the the balance of the squad and there are a few players, you know, Trinity Rodman only has three caps. Sophia Smith only has 15. You have uh, Mitch Purse only has 14 caps. You have an uncapped player and Taylor Korniak as well. Um, there are a few players that it's very clear they're being picked based off of club form, trying to reinvigorate this national team a little bit with some youth and a newer generation, but you still have some of the players like Becky Sauerbrunn, who has more than 200 caps. Uh, you mentioned Regan, uh, uh, Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan. I find it fascinating how Vlatko Andonovsky is going to maintain this balance over the course of these next few years. You'll eventually head into the World Cup and Olympic cycle over the course of these next two years. You would presume that the U.S. will qualify this summer for both of those tournaments. But I, I do find interesting continually how... Vlako Andonovsky is regime changing. And I wonder if saying that thing about Kristen Press is about signaling that message that, look, I'm, I'm not going to call the big guns who have been around this national team for the last eight years almost unquestioned, and changes are going to start to be made. And I feel like that's part of what that public message is, even though it's probably unnecessarily sticking the boot in on Kristen Press when she's already down. Yeah, uh, very curious to see how this shapes up for the U.S. women and, and looking forward to covering them on site down in Mexico. One last thing I wanted to talk about uh, here is the big MLS Apple broadcast deal that was announced last week. 
10 years in this deal, Apple will show every single league game, which I think is great. Um, what stood out to you about this deal? Well, I think that very fact, and I know that that's something that you like to talk about all the time because of the nature of the subscription model, particularly with the Premier League, where you have to be a Peacock subscriber and some either MP MVPD or cable subscriber to get the games on over-the-air NBC or USA. And I do think that for the fans, it's great. If you're a, a Major League Soccer fan, a diehard I would definitely recommend getting a season ticket now because you get it for free as, as part of your season ticket. I hope that that incentivizes further season ticket sales in local markets. Uh, if you're a fan, you just have to pay for one subscription. You get everything. I think that's a good experience. I think the fact that they're moving to full 1080p makes it a much better viewing experience than it's been in some local markets. You know, the, the, the broadcast quality will go up. I kind of vacillate on the broadcaster situation. Obviously, I'm very close to it, having worked for a local broadcast down here in Miami, working for Univision, doing radio down here in Miami as well, because I understand that fans develop attachments to their broadcasters. And I, and I get it. If you're you know, a fan of the New York Red Bulls, you like listening to Steve Cangelosi and Shep Messing. You have done for a very long time. If you're a Portland Timbers fan, you've been listening to Jake Zivin and John Strong, and you've seen them go on to do big things in the broadcasting industry. And you can name every single team, and I would presume their fans have a genuine attachment. Dave Johnson in Washington, D.C., and, and on and on and on. Down here in Miami, it would seem unbelievable to not watch a game with Ray Hudson on commentary. But I also think think that the league are trying to create one standard for broadcast and I don't think that's necessarily been the case production wise or or really in any other way or in, in any other sense so I understand it so I think for fans it's great certainly working in this bit in this industry it's been a wild week of fielding phone calls from all my friends going what the heck is going on here and and certainly I hope that everyone uh, who I know and, and and the best people end up getting these jobs at Apple I'll toss my hat in the ring why not um, but uh, but it's 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 one of those things that it's it's upended the model in some ways it's the first domestic league in the US or really anywhere that's gone to this model where it's 100% streaming and you just have to buy a subscription and not not like Syria in the US i'm talking about a country in a you know a, a league in the country that it serves to be 100% streaming it's a big risk and and really the the element that's most kind of in doubt here is growth how does apple help grow mls how does apple reach people that otherwise would not be watching MLS in the way that putting a game on over-the-air Fox, even if the ratings are low, you at the very least get more exposure. You get commercials during the week. You get all kinds of ways in which MLS is being put in front of people where, where they otherwise wouldn't. I'm curious how Apple is going to go about growth and growing their subscription base and growing the overall fan base in this country. Yeah, a couple of things I would say. One, there will be games, MLS games on linear television. So that will likely be ESPN platforms. Fox, I've heard, is still involved in talks. Univision expected to as well. So it won't, like, you'll, you'll, if you have the streaming package, you will get everything. So you don't need the other stuff, but there still will be that ability. I guess one question I have, a couple questions, is kind of what you're saying there. How much will Apple promote this? You know, because they certainly have the ability on my phone to put out alerts saying, watch this MLS game if they want to. But the question is, will they want to? Because I'm not getting alerts for 
MLB games on Apple right now on my phone that they now have. And then the other question I've got simply is, how much is this streaming package going to cost consumers? And how much would you be willing to pay for that? Because one thing I had said about NBC streaming for the Premier League, I would pay a certain number that's higher than I'm currently paying for Peacock if I could get every single Premier League game. For MLS, my desire is, is there, so I'll, I'll probably buy this package. But like, is that going to be... 10 bucks a season is that going to be 25 bucks a season and you know what's that price point going to be yeah i i think you know i i, I wouldn't even venture a guess and you can start to maybe compare it against the mlb.tvs or nba league pass um, but those are unique experiences in that those are only out of market games if you're a miami heat fan you can't buy NBA League Pass and watch the Miami Heat in Miami because you have to watch it on the local cable channel. So that's all, that's kind of a narrow version of the picture. This is everything. This is for your local team. You're paying X amount of money. I'll be curious if they maybe create different packages to where maybe you just want to buy your team and, and that's a smaller number rather than paying for the whole thing. So I, I couldn't even venture a guess as to what that number would be. As you said, I just hope it's affordable and maybe they raise it, they raise it over time uh, when they start to recognize recognize value and success but I think to get people in on the ground floor so so that they're not getting a headline you know a, a CNN plus headline in three months time there's only X number of people that are uh, subscribing to this service I hope they start at a lower price point and, and and think about being consumer first actually those numbers I threw out were kind of ridiculous it's gonna be more like 70 to 100 bucks for right. a season I would think probably pay less per month if you get a whole season subscription as opposed to a monthly subscription but curious to see how that shakes out chris great talking to you as always thanks grant now here's my interview with lindsey barons our guest now is lindsey barons she's the president of the oakland roots and oakland soul which is the women's team that launches its crest this thursday on june 23rd the 50th anniversary of title nine Barron's a Yale Law grad, has also worked for the Washington Spirit, the NWSL League Office, Real Salt Lake, and the Utah Royals, in addition to the Obama administration. Lindsay, it's great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. I'm so happy to be here. Lots to talk about here, but I definitely want to start with the news this week. What can you tell us about Thursday's Crest launch for the Oakland Soul and the significance of launching it on the 50th anniversary of Title IX. The Oakland Soul is our new women's team that we're adding to the Oakland Roots family. It will play in the USLW League starting in 2023. And the club here has always had ambitions to have a women's team. We want the Oakland Roots and the Oakland Soul to represent the entire Oakland community and so it was a critical item uh, for the growth and development of our club. The team here has spent months, if not years, talking to members of the community and developing an identity, including the name and the crest for the club. And we are launching it this Thursday at an event here in Oakland that we're super excited about. And yes, it happens to be uh, the 50th anniversary of Title IX, you know, the historic and groundbreaking legislation that has paved the way for women's athletics in the United States. And it's 
really an honor that we get to launch our crest that day and to celebrate all the great things that have come from that legislation. So we're coming out Monday. Uh, we're talking on Saturday. And it's interesting because if you go back in the 200-some interviews we've done for my podcast, um, I've had Dries Ragandawal uh, from the Oakland Roots on here um, about a year and a half, two years ago. And then we also had Matthew Wolf, who designed the crest for the Oakland Roots, um, which is a very cool crest. Is is the, the crest for the Oakland Soul also going to be cool? Tell me about it. Or what you can <laughs> Well, the beautiful thing about my commentary on the crest is that I'm not responsible for their crest. So I can praise it and tell you how incredible it's going to be. And it's really not self-serving for me because substantial credit goes to Idris. You know, Idris is one of the founders of the Oakland Roots and Oakland Soul, and he has such a light and vision about him and what this organization should be. And he has led the entire way uh, on the developing the identity for the Oakland Soul. And the thing about the Oakland Roots and Oakland Soul is that we strive to be a different kind of sports club. We are very values-based, very mission-driven, and totally focused on our community. And that might sound like something people have heard other sports clubs say, but in my experience, it is a very unique identity that the Roots have and a totally unique commitment. And there is no gap between the words we say and the way we make decisions and the way we conduct ourselves in the community. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. But unlike any other organization I've ever been a part of, and I'm not just speaking about sports, I'm talking about any organization I've ever been a part of, there's a deep, deep commitment to our mission and to developing health, equity, and happiness here in Oakland, not just putting championship soccer on the field, which is absolutely part of our mission, but to being a contributing and positive member of the community. In what sort of ways is that going to manifest itself with the Oakland Soul? Well, I think that in much the same way it manifests itself with the Oakland Roots, we will have community partners who we contribute to, who are featured at our games, who are actively contributing to the health, equity, and happiness of Oakland. And we have, as an example, um, we don't just focus on those things through our community engagement work. It's a part of every part of our organization. We have a chief purpose officer who keeps us on the straight and narrow when it comes to living our values. And we think about it in our corporate partnerships, in our ticketing sales, in our marketing, in every part of our organization. So back to my example, we have a, our uh, Jersey front partner is Anthem. And we conducted a coaches training session uh, for youth coaches in the community. And yes, it was about soccer and soccer skills, but it was also about how to be an empathetic, caring coach who incorporates anti-racism into the field. And that's the kind of thing where a lot of people, again, a lot of people talk about it, but I've been at The Roots now for six months and I've never seen it in action quite like it is here. And the USLW League starts in 2023, but as I understand it, their calendar is going to be different than 
some of the things like we're used to seeing in the U.S., some of the leagues we're used to seeing in the U.S., uh, how would you explain that? Like, when does the, the league actually start? And could you fill me in a little bit just on when you're planning to have players, coach, etc.? So we're starting in the W League, which is the pre-professional league that the USL started this year. So it will play its games in the summer, uh, somewhat complementary to USL League 2 that the men have. Then the USL is launching the Super League, which will be the professional league that will be complementary to USL Championship, which is the league that the Oakland Roots play in. I'll say it is our ambition to self-promote the team along the way, but we are starting in the W League. So that will be games in the spring and summer of 2023. Amanda Vandervoort, my friend, is going to be unhappy with me for getting this wrong. So thank you for setting me straight. I appreciate it. There's a lot of leagues going on. You got to just keep them all straight. (laughs) And it's great, right? Because this means we're building the pyramid of women's soccer in the United States the same way it exists for men. And for a long time, that hasn't existed. We've had the very elite NWSL, best in the world. And we've had the amateur leagues that get together in the summer and provide a a great service to the players who get to participate in those leagues but it's not a professional environment but now we're filling in the pyramid and we're going to have a dedicated pre-professional league in the w league and a division two league in the super league and that's been missing from women's soccer and if we want to continue to compete on the world stage we need a full pyramid of women's development for soccer in the united states yeah it's, it's really cool just to see what's happening with the women's club game in the U.S. these days and how it's, you know, blossoming and going to new places. And, um, you know, it's cool to see what Minnesota Aurora is doing. Incredible stuff. They are doing incredible stuff. Yeah. And I guess another question I would have just is, how would you describe Oakland and, you know, Oakland as a soccer community and, and how you came about getting this job starting in January? So the Oakland Roots ran a very traditional competitive process with a recruiter to hire a president. It was very arduous, I will say. Uh, They took it very seriously and really wanted to find somebody not just with the skills that it takes to run a professional soccer club, but also who was a values fit for them. And now that I've been here, I, I believe the Oakland Roots is my soulmate. I know that sounds cheesy. <laughs> but this team, this club is just incredible. I absolutely love it here. Oakland is an amazing community, so diverse, such a rich history of activism, you know, the birthplace of the Black Power movement. So much to offer, not just the Bay Area, not just California, but the world in terms of modeling how to have a healthy and you know, vibrant community that's very diverse. So Oakland is wonderful. We want to be good partners to Oakland and we want to stay in Oakland forever. And how did you end up sort of in soccer? Because it sounds like you've worked in areas that are outside of soccer. You've obviously worked in soccer for a while now. How did that happen? So I am a lateral into soccer. Uh, I had a career before this starting as an activist in politics and then going to law school and being a lawyer and doing a little entrepreneurial stint. And then in 2016, you know, what happened in our country happened. And I had a deep desire to contribute to writing the ship. 
and my instinct was to go back into politics, but I find politics really challenging. I'm too principled to be successful in politics. I cannot compromise, and politics requires compromise to be successful. So I was searching for where I could work, where I would feel like I was making a contribution positively uh, to the community, um, but where I could use the skill set I developed as a mergers and acquisitions attorney in deal making. And at the time, I was searching for this place. I didn't know what it was. An NWSL team was launched in Salt Lake City, where I grew up. And I was like, oh, duh. Sports is the intersection of business and activism. And I love women's soccer. I'm of the age where the 99ers was you know, critical to my development as a human. I was a huge NWSL fan. Um, I was, you know, loved Sam Kerr. I lived in New York City and took a bus three hours to <laughs> the middle of New Jersey to see her play then on Sky Blue FC. And I was like, this is so cool. And I called my friend who was the mayor of Salt Lake City at the time, and I had run her campaign and gotten her elected. And I said, do you know the owner of this team that's launching a women's team in Salt Lake? And she said, yes, I do. I'm, I'm happy to introduce you, but, but what are you gonna say? Like, what are you gonna do for them? And I said, I don't know. I just wanna be in the organization. I wanna see all the parts of it and how it all fits together. And she said, do you mean like an intern? And I said, yeah, but let's call it executive in training. <laughs> and she was like, okay. So I talked my way into a job at Real in the Utah Royals where I started out as a lawyer, which was not a job that I wanted, but it was my way in the door. And I spent a couple of years there and then I went to the NWSL and then I went to the Washington Spirit. And then I was just very, very fortunate to find my way to the Oakland Roots and Soul. No, oh, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and I do know that when you were with the NWSL League office, you were involved with the sale of broadcast rights and uh, the current deal uh, you were intimately involved with, with CBS and Twitch. Could you explain what that process was like? Sure. After the World Cup in 2019, the NWSL did not have a media deal, which is crazy, right? We were coming off all this attention. We were riding this huge wave of momentum and we did not have a multi-year media rights deal. And at the time I was at Real and I was nominated, appointed, volunteered, however you wanna say it, to run the process to sell the NWSL's media rights. So I was an employee at Real, but I was working pretty much full time for the NWSL. And we hired Dan Cohen at Octagon to be the agency to represent us. And we ran a very comprehensive and in some ways traditional process to sell our media rights. And that had not historically been how people had approached selling media rights in the women's sports world, right? It was very much approached with this, from this perspective of scarcity, like, oh, we were lucky to get the conversation. And well, you would have one conversation with the two cable networks that show sports, and that would really be the end of it. But Dan and Octagon, they believed in the value of the NWSL, especially coming off the World Cup. And they went out and talked to everybody. 
You know, there, there's a world in which we didn't even call CBS, in which we didn't even have a conversation with a major sports network, or not, not a major sports network, with a broadcast network. But they said, no, we're going to talk to everybody. And we're also going to talk to the streaming platforms because it's 2019. The world is moving online and streaming platforms have audiences that in many cases way exceed the number of people who are watching cable and broadcast television. So we talked to everyone and we came up with this hybrid deal with CBS and Twitch and we put our first game on CBS in the middle of the pandemic and over 500,000 people watched that game. Before that, the most watched game ever in the history of the NWSL was 180,000 people. We saw our audience explode overnight, 3X. And I think that those deals, while I hope that the NWSL gets bigger and better deals every year to come, uh, I think they were absolutely monumental in the growth of that league and were really a turning point in legitimizing the league and putting professional club soccer on a major U.S. network for the first time in history. It is cool to to see the NWSL games. I, I can see any game I want as a subscriber, but also just to see them on big CBS um, and getting the numbers that they're getting, which honestly have been either equivalent to what MLS has gotten on broadcast, free-to-air TV, sometimes bigger, slightly, um, and I, I do wonder sort of, are we at a, in this point right now where women's sports in particular are sort of launching and, and people are starting to realize in like in the broadcast realm, what women's sports could actually do with greater investment? Absolutely. And that has been a long time coming. You know, the WNBA has been around for 25 years and it's surviving, it's here to stay. It needs to expand so we can get more competition and talent into that league. The 2019 Women's World Cup, I think was absolutely a turning point that we'll never go back from. We are now at a point where enough people realize the value of investing in women's sports. And I think for a long time, there's been this idea that investing in women's sports was different than men's sports because for some reason you had to break even year over year in women's sports where that's never been the expectation for how you operate a men's sports team. It, there's always been an understanding that you might have operating losses locally or you might have operating losses year over year, but the long-term underlying asset value growth was worth it for that investment. And then at the end of your investment, you were gonna cash out and make a lot of money. And now, enough people with capital understand that the same investment philosophy applies to women's sports and they're putting money in. I guess I am curious. I mean, just recently we saw last week the announcement of the new MLS deal for the men's league for the next 10 years with Apple. And you're going to be able to see every game from that league on Apple uh, streaming. Um, do you take anything away from that about what it might mean for women's soccer and women's sports in broadcast deals moving forward. I don't know that that deal necessarily informs my thoughts on how women's sports at this moment in the trajectory should um, approach the sale of broadcast rights. I think more importantly to me is seeing something like the CBS women's sports block where they will put on, you know, 
the WNBA, the NWSL, and the other women's sports properties that they broadcast all together and run advertising around women's sports weekend, or I don't know, I, I apologies to CBS for not knowing what exactly their branding is, but like to take all these properties, they've invested in women's sports properties and to put them together and bundle them with a talk show. It's just so exciting to see that happening on the largest broadcast network in this country. It's really incredible. I want to pull back just a little bit because you grew up queer in Utah and as the sibling of a brother who grew up gay in Kansas, uh, I've, I've had some firsthand knowledge of what that might be like, but what was that experience like for you? It was difficult. I grew up in Utah in the 80s and 90s, and you know, it's not just being a queer kid, but also being a woman. Uh, it's a challenging place if you are ambitious and seek a professional career path. I say this story uh, somewhat notoriously, but I didn't have any professional women in my orbit growing up. Um, I had to look for fictional role models and was a big fan of Murphy Brown. And so that was very meaningful to me to be able to see characters like that on TV. And I think it made me who I am, you know? I don't take no for an answer. I have so much determination. When people tell me I can't do something, it just reinforces the idea that I can do it because as a queer kid growing up, you're told over and over and over, you can't be that, you can't do that, you shouldn't have that dream. But I didn't listen to that and made it out. And those early obstacles are just, you know, so formative and a part of who I am. First Candace Bergen reference in the history of the podcast. So. Oh, no way. Oh, you got to have more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And am I right in saying that the campaign that you worked on with the mayor of Salt Lake City, the first mayor, openly gay mayor of that city ever, correct? That's correct. Yeah, Jackie Biskupski. We elected her to the mayor of Capital City of the state of Utah in 2015. Would you have ever thought that was possible growing up? Never. I'll be honest. I didn't think it was possible in 2015. I went into that campaign thinking it was absolutely righteous and that we were going to prompt a lot of dinner table conversations that would be really revolutionary at a grassroots level. But we were up against a very popular two-term incumbent and, you know, we played to win, but if you'd asked me on day one what I thought we would win, I probably would have said that was unlikely. Um, but yeah, and actually I just had the incredible honor of returning to Salt Lake and speaking at the unveiling of her official portrait that will hang in the city building there forever. And I just think about how incredible it will be that like little kids will tour that facility and see this gay woman who is mayor of that city. I just, I get chills thinking about it. That's so cool. And I also wanted to ask about a couple other things. One, the Obama administration. What did you do? How did you get involved with that? So I was a White House fellow. That is a program that was started by the Johnson administration during the Vietnam War when government service was not a very popular idea. And the idea was to bring... Uh, Professionals who are mid-career 
and also service members into the administration at a very high level. So you sort of work directly with a cabinet member or an agency head and teach them about government, public policy, and leadership. So when I applied for that program, everybody told me it's really competitive, don't bother. (laughs) And speaking of really arduous interview processes, that was the most complex, difficult interview process I've ever been a part of because the president appoints a commission and the commissioners are the ones who select the fellows and my year like Tom Brokaw was a commissioner and so I was like being interviewed by Tom Brokaw and I was like this is so weird but anyway again when people tell me I can't do something all that means to me is that I for sure can do it so yeah I was in this like very fancy fellowship we got to meet all these fancy people and have lunch with all the cabinet secretaries and the president and the first lady and the vice president and do lots of cool stuff, the coolest of which was flying onto and off of an aircraft carrier, which is truly amazing. Uh, so yeah, that was a lot of fun. I worked at the White House Office of Management and Budget and learned a lot and had a wonderful experience. And I highly recommend that program and we need more women and people of color to apply to it. So if anybody's interested about that program, hit me up on LinkedIn because I'm happy to chat with you about it. And you also work for the Washington Spirit. And, you know, last year in particular was a a year of extremes, I guess is the best way to put it. On the field, the team won the league title. Um, So many impressive things happening with the players on that team. Um, And then there were all sorts of abuse stories coming out of of the team, too. Uh, Stories connected to... The then coach, Richie Burke, stories connected to the then ownership that is no longer the ownership of the team. What was your experience like inside of all that? First, shout out to the players and the staff at the Washington Spirit. As you mentioned, they overcame incredible challenges to put on a very successful year of soccer and to win the NWSL, you know, championship, which is incredible. So just like all honor and credit to those people, both on the field and the staff, because I loved working there with those people. On the other hand, I did see a lot of things at the Spirit that I thought were very bad. And I did speak up about those things and I was fired by Baldwin and I do consider that a badge of honor and I'm very glad that the ownership of that team has changed hands. What can you tell us about Michelle Kang? Because she's uh, she seems very impressive. I'd love to get her on the show at some point. Um, She ended up becoming the owner of the team and outdoing the the person who just bought Chelsea. (laughs) Um, Like, what what can you tell me about her? Oh, gosh, I feel like I shouldn't speak for Michelle because she's so incredible and you absolutely should have her on your show because her background is just so incredible. And, you know, an immigrant to this country, an entrepreneur, a passionate defender of, you know, women's rights and equality and that they should be treated with respect and... I just am so glad that she's taken over ownership of that club. And 
Let's bring it back just to wrap up here in terms of Oakland Roots, Oakland Soul. What are you wanting to achieve there in the coming years? The thing we want to achieve with the Oakland Roots and Oakland Soul is that we want to be a club that is financially sustainable, environmentally sustainable, all while living our values of health, equity, and happiness. And we want to support Oakland in achieving its ambitions, but also be a model for sports clubs around the world that you can do well by doing good. And I know that's a little bit of a trite phrase that gets overused, but we are seeing real success in being true to our values. And I'll just give one small example, which is that Senator Ted Cruz used one of our gifts on his Twitter timeline, which is extremely offensive to us because he doesn't stand for our values. And Adris, the aforementioned genius CMO of our club said, you know, can I respond to this? And honestly, I didn't really think about it for even half a second. I said, absolutely. And he did so in a way that I thought was totally appropriate. And I think, well, I know it's the most viral tweet we've ever had, but I think there are people who sort of questioned why we did that. And it's like, no, you're just not getting it. If you have any doubts about why we did that, then I don't think you're really understanding what it is that we stand for here. We are about you know, racial and gender equity. We are about being an anti-racist organization. We want to have a women's team that is treated with respect and dignity, the same as our men's team. And we want to be a club that is inclusive for the LGBTQ community, uh, for all racial and ethnic backgrounds in Oakland, you know, able-bodied and differently abled. We want everyone to be in our club and to feel like soccer is the game for them because I really believe in the power of soccer to contribute to the health, equity, and happiness of the world and here in Oakland. So we want to be a soccer club that is both financially viable and sustainable, but also that does good in the world. And that's our ambition. Lindsay Behrens is the president of the Oakland Roots and Oakland Soul, which is launching its crest this Thursday on June 23rd, the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Lindsay, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Lindsay Behrens, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>